Chapter 11 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cal Taylor. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 11, The Chicago Surrender. The Democratic managers had called the National Convention of their party to meet on the 4th of July, 1864. But after the nomination of Fremont at Cleveland and of Lincoln at Baltimore, it was thought prudent to postpone it to a later date, in the hope that something in the chapter of accidents might arise to the advantage of the opposition. It appeared for a while as if this maneuver were to be successful, as a vessel shows its finest sailing qualities against a headwind, so the best political work is always done in the face of severe opposition. And as the Republican Party had as yet no enemy before it, the canvas, during its first months, seemed stricken with languor and apathy. The military situation was far from satisfactory. The terrible fighting in the wilderness, succeeded by Grant's flank movement to the left, and the culmination of the campaign in a horrible slaughter at Cold Harbor, had profoundly shocked and depressed the country. The movement upon Petersburg, so far without decisive results, had contributed little of hope or encouragement. The campaign of Sherman in Georgia gave as yet no positive assurance of the brilliant result it afterwards attained. The Confederate raid into Maryland and Pennsylvania in July was a cause of great annoyance and exasperation. This untoward state of things in the field of military operations found its exact counterpart in the political campaign. Several circumstances contributed to divide and discourage the administration party. The resignation of Mr. Chase on the last day of June had seemed to not a few leading Republicans of the North as a presage of disintegration of, in the government. Mr. Greeley's mission at Niagara Falls, in spite of the wise and resolute attitude taken by the President in relation to peace negotiations, had unsettled and troubled the minds of many. The Democratic Party, not having as yet appointed a candidate nor formulated a platform, were free to devote all their leisure to attacks upon the administration, and a political fuselage continued with great energy throughout the summer months. The Republicans were everywhere on the defensive, having no objective point of attack in the opposite lines. The rebel emissaries in Canada, being in thorough concert with the leading peacemen of the North, redoubled their efforts to disturb the public tranquility, and not without success. Mr. Davis says of this period, Political developments at the North favored the adoption of some action that might influence popular sentiment in a hostile section. The aspect of the Peace Party was quite encouraging, and it seemed that the real issue to be decided in a presidential election in that year was the continuance or cessation of the war. There is a remarkable concurrence between this view of Mr. Davis and that of Mr. Lincoln in a letter to a friend, which we have quoted in another place. Referring to the emissaries at Niagara Falls and their interest in the Chicago Convention, and also to the expressions used by the Confederate authorities in their conversation with Jacques, Mr. Lincoln said, The present presidential contest will almost certainly be no other than a contest between a union and a disunion candidate, disunion certainly following the success of the latter. 
Mr. Thompson, in his report of the operations of the Rebel Commission in Canada, claims that the results of the Niagara Falls Conference were the source of such encouragement to the Peace Party as to lead them to give up their half-formed project of insurrection in the Northwest in the hope of defeating Lincoln at the polls. In the midst of these discouraging circumstances, the manifesto of Wade and Davis appeared to add its depressing influence to the general gloom. It seemed for a time as if this action of two of the most prominent Republicans in either House of Congress would result in a serious defection from the Republican Party, though, in the end, the effect of the demonstration proved inconsiderable. General McCallan had before this time become the acknowledged leader of the Democratic Party in the North. It is true he was not the favorite candidate of the democracy in most of the western states, but in the powerful states of the seaboard, and especially in the large cities, he was the only person indicated by popular consent among the opposition and the, as the antagonist of Lincoln in a presidential canvass. His attitude, therefore, was a matter of grave preoccupation, not only to most of the leading Republicans, but even to the president himself. There have been, in the last twenty years, many conflicting stories in regard to the overtures made to him during the summer, but, so far as can be ascertained, they were all the voluntary acts of overanxious friends of the president, and made without his knowledge or consent. As early as the month of June, 1863, Thurlow Weed conceived the idea that it would be of great advantage to the Union cause if General McCallan would take a prominent part in a great war meeting to be held in New York. With the knowledge and approval of the president, he approached the general with his purpose. He even suggested to him that the result might be the organization of a movement to make him the Union candidate for the presidency. We learned from Mr. Weed that General McKellen at first gave a favorable hearing to the proposition, but at the last moment withdrew his consent to preside at the meeting in a letter to which she said, I am clear in the conviction that the policy governing the conduct of the war should be one looking not only to military success, but also to the ultimate reunion, and that it should consequently be such as to preserve the rights of all Union-loving citizens, whether they may be as far as compatible with military necessity. The chance of identifying himself with the Union Party thus passed away. Later in the season, he came out in favor of the candidates of the Peace Faction in Pennsylvania. An attempt made in July 1864 by Francis P. Blair, the elder, to induce McKellen to withdraw from a canvas caused a great deal of gossip at the time, and led to such misstatements and exaggerations that Mr. Blair afterwards published a full and detailed account of his action. The venerable gentleman, sharing in the apprehension entertained by many as to the divisions and consequent weakness of the Union Party, went to New York in the later part of July to make an effort at conciliation. I went on this errand, said Mr. Blair, without consulting the president, without giving him, directly or indirectly, the slightest intimation of my object, and, of course, without his authority, I apprised no one but my son. He first called upon the leading editors of the city. Mr. Bryant, though discontented with the administration, considered Mr. Lincoln, with all his abatements, the only man who could be relied upon for the defense of the Union. 
mr greeley assured mr blair that his best efforts would not be wanting to secure the peace of the country and a re-election of the president mr bennett of the herald gave his ultimatum in a rockle scottish accent tell him to restore mccallan to the army and he will carry the election by default through s l m barlow mr blair had a long and intimate conversation with general mccallan he began by stating distinctly to him that he had not come from mr lincoln that he had no authority or even consent for him to make representations or overtures of any sort he then urged him with privilege of age and long friendship to have nothing to do with the chicago convention saying that if he accepted their nomination he would be defeated he pictured to him the dismal fate that awaits defeated candidates he urged him to make himself the inspiring center and representative of the loyal democrats of the north by writing a letter to lincoln asking to be restored to service in the army declaring at the same time that he did not seek it with a view to recommend himself to the presidential nomination in case the president should refuse this request said mr blair he would then be responsible for the consequences general mcclellan received this well-meant advice in his customary manner it is altogether probable that he did not believe a word of mr blair's opening statement that this overture was without approval or privity of the president it has no doubt seemed to him a political trick to induce him to decline a nomination to which he was already certain he listened with his habitual courtesy and answered with his habitual indecision he disclaimed any desire for the presidential candidacy he thanked mr blair for his friendly suggestions he said he would give them deep consideration that he was called to the country to seek a sick child and regretted that he could not talk with him again mr blair came back from his useless mission and repeated to mr lincoln what he had done adding that he thought it probable that general mcclellan would write to him the president neither expressed approval nor disapprobation says mr blair in his letter but his manner was as courteous and kind as general mcclellan's had been the political situation grew darker throughout the summer at last towards the end of august the general gloom and depression enveloped the president himself the democrats had not yet selected their candidate nor opened their campaign as in the field of theology there is no militant virtue unless there is an active evil to oppose so in that of politics a party without an organized opposition appears to drop to pieces by its own weight to use mr lincoln's words at this period we had no adversary and seemed to have no friends for a moment he despaired of the success of the union party in the coming election he was not alone in this impression it was shared by his leading friends and counselors so experienced and astute a politician as thorough weed wrote on the twenty second of august when ten days since i told mr lincoln that his re-election was an impossibility i also told him that the information would soon come to him through other channels it is doubtless ere this reached him at any rate nobody here doubts it nor do i see any one from other states who authorizes the slightest hope of success mr raymond who has just left me says that unless some prompt and bold step be now taken all is lost the people are wild for peace they are told that the president will only listen to terms of peace on condition that slavery be abandoned mr raymond thinks commissioners should be immediately sent to richmond 
offering to treat for peace on the basis of union, that something should be done and promptly done to give the administration a chance for his life is certain. Mr. Lincoln's action in this conjuncture was most original and characteristic. Feeling that the campaign was going against him, he made up his mind deliberately as to the course he should pursue, and unwilling to leave his resolution to the chances of the changed mood which might follow in a natural exasperation of defeat, he resolved to lay down for himself the course of action demanded by his present conviction of duty. He wrote on the 23rd of August the following memorandum. This morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be re-elected. Then it will be my duty to cooperate with the President-elect as to save the Union between the election and the inauguration, as he will have secured his election on such ground that he cannot possibly save it afterwards. He then folded and pasted the sheet in such manner that its contents could not be read, and as the cabinet came together, he handed this piece to each member successively, requesting them to write their names across the back of it. In this peculiar fashion, he pledged himself and the administration to accept loyally the anticipated verdict of the people against him, and to do their utmost to save the Union in the brief remainder of his term of office. He gave no animation to any other member of the cabinet of the nature of the paper they had signed until after his triumphant re-election. The Democratic Convention was finally called to meet in Chicago on the 29th of August. Much was expected from the strength and the audacity which the Peace Party in the Northwest had recently displayed, and the day of the meeting of the Convention was actually the date chosen by rebel emissaries in Canada and their agents in the Western States for an outbreak which should affect that revolution in the Northwest, which was the vague and chimerical dream that had been so long cherished and caressed in Richmond and Toronto. About the time of the adjournment of Congress, the Democratic members of that body issued an address to their party, which, when read after twenty-five years, shows how blinded by partisan passion these intelligent and well-meaning gentlemen, neither better nor worse in most respects than the rest of their fellow citizens, had become. They charged, in effect, that there were only two classes of people supporting the government, those who were making money out of the war and the radical abolitionist, and they called upon the indefinite abstraction which they named the country to throw out of office the administration of a government under favor of which these two classes of men nestle in power and gratify their unholy greed and their detestable passions the party of the Union, that is to say, the majority of the people of the country, is called, in this address, a nightmare of corruption and fanaticism which is pressing out its very existence. The most remarkable feature of this singular document is its assumption that the people who were trying to save the Union and to reestablish its authority were influenced only by sentimental doctrines and the wild passions of fury and vengeance. We do not decry a theory these congressmen gravely said, but we assert that statesmanship is concerned mainly in the domain of the practical, and that in the present imperfect condition of human affairs it is obliged to modify general ideas and adapt them to existing conditions. They called upon the country to sustain this calm and philosophic view of the function of statesmanship, 
to bring the sound elements of society to the surface to purge the body politic of its unhealthy elements and to substitute in places of public trust just and broad-minded pure and liberal men in the place of radicals and corruptionists this being done they promised the millennium a democratic national convention came together at the time appointed but it is by no means sure that any real and permanent advantage had been gained by the delay the scheme of the american knights to inaugurate on that day their counter-revolution had by the usual treachery of some of their members been discovered and guarded against by a strong show of force in the city of chicago and its execution was postponed until the day of the november election no great approach to harmony on the subject of peace or war had been made in the two months of observation and skirmishing which the managers had allowed themselves the only manner in which the peacemen and the war democrats could arrive at an agreement was by mutual deception the war democrats led by the delegation from new york were working for a military candidate and the peace democrats under the redoubtable leadership of mr vallandigham who had returned from canada and was allowed to remain at large by the half contemptuous and half calculated lenity of the government he defied bent all their energies to a clear statement of their principles in the platform august belmont a german by birth and a representative of the rothschilds banking house called the delegates to order informing them that the future of the republic rested in their hands four years of misrule he said by a sectional fanatical and corrupt party have brought our country to the very verge of ruin he gravely stated expecting it to be believed and apparently believing in himself that the results of such a calamity as the re-election of mr lincoln must be the utter disintegration of our whole political and social system amidst bloodshed and anarchy this german banker promised the convention that the american people would rush to the support of its candidate and platform provided you will offer to their suffrage a tried patriot this vague reference to mcallen was greeted with applause from the eastern delegates mr belmont said we are not here not as war democrats nor as peace democrats but as citizens of the great republic and he named as temporary chairman william bigler formerly governor of pennsylvania mr bigler made a brief speech charging upon the republicans all the woes of the country and saying that the men now in authority because of the feud which they have so long maintained with violent and unwise men of the south and because of a blind fanaticism about an institution of some of the states in relation to which they have no duties to perform and no responsibilities to bear are rendered incapable of adopting the proper means to rescue our country our whole country from its present lamentable condition the usual committees were appointed and clement v vallandigham was presented by his state delegation as a member of the committee on platform several resolutions were offered in open convention one by washington hunt of new york suggesting a convention of the states one by thomas l price of missouri for a demonstration in favor of the freedom and purity of the elective franchise and one by alexander long of ohio a furious advocate of peace who had attained the distinction of censure by the congress of the united states suggested that a committee proceed forthwith to washington 
to demand of mr lincoln the suspension of the draft until after the election governor seymour of new york was chosen permanent chairman of the convention he made a long and eloquent speech full of abstract devolution to the union and denunciation of all of the measures that had hitherto been taken to save it this administration he said cannot now save this union if it would it has by its own proclamations by vindictive legislation by displays of hate and passion placed obstacles in its own pathway which it cannot overcome and has hampered its own freedom of action by unconstitutional acts but mr seymour did not mourn as one without hope he continued if the administration cannot save this union we can mr lincoln values many things above the union we put it first of all he thinks a proclamation worth more than a peace we think the blood of our people more precious than the edicts of the president we demand no conditions for the restoration of our union we are shackled with no hates no prejudice no passions and so as he imagined without prejudice without hatred and without passion he went on denouncing his government and a majority of his fellow-citizens with eloquent fury to the end of his speech his address was greeted at its close with loud applause not unmingled with calls on the part of the peace men from Vallandigham. the latter did not respond at that moment but the most weighty utterance of the convention was his nevertheless the second resolution of the platform reported by the chairman james guthrie of kentucky there had been on the organization of the committee a contest between guthrie and Vallandigham for the chairmanship through the artifices of cassidy tilden and other new york politicians mr guthrie of kentucky received twelve votes to eight for Vallandigham. but whatever managers may accomplish the strongest man with the most force behind him generally has his way and when the committee got to work Vallandigham carried too many guns for guthrie he wrote to use his own words the material resolution of the chicago platform and carried it through the subcommittee and the general committee in spite of the most desperate persistent opposition on the part of cassidy and his friends mr cassidy in an adjoining room laboring to defeat it this Vallandigham resolution is the only one in the platform worth quoting all the rest were a string of more commonplaces declaring devotion to the union denouncing interference of the military in elections enumerating of the illegal and arbitrary acts of the government expressing the sympathy of the convention with soldiers and sailors and prisoners of war but the clause written by mr Vallandigham and by him forced upon his party resolved that this convention does explicitly declare as the sense of the american people that after four years of failure to restore the union by the experiment of war during which under the pretense of a military necessity or war power higher than the constitution the constitution itself has been disregarded in every part and public liberty and private right alike trodden down and the material prosperity of the country essentially impaired justice humanity liberty and the public welfare demand that immediate efforts be made for a cessation of hostilities with a view to an ultimate convention of the states or other peaceable means to the end that at the earliest practical moment peace may be restored on the basis of the federal union of the states 
it is altogether probable that this distinct proposition of surrender to the confederates might have been modified or defeated in full convention if the war democrats had the courage of their convictions but they were so intent upon the nomination of mcallen that they considered the question of platform as of secondary importance and these fatal resolutions were therefore adopted without debate and the convention passed to the nomination of candidates general mcallen was nominated by john p stockton of new jersey followed by s s cox of ohio willard salisbury of delaware nominated l w powell of kentucky who with compliments declined mr stewart in behalf of the peace faction from ohio nominated t h seymour of connecticut and charles a wickliffe of kentucky raised the specter of the old-fashioned democracy in the convention by nominating ex-president pierce in a speech more amusing than effective mcclellan received a hundred seventy four votes but before the result was declared the vote was raised upon revision to two o two seymour received a little more than one-tenth of that number mr vallandigham who had taken possession of the convention through his platform now adopted the candidate also and put the seal of his sinister approval upon general mcallen by moving that his nomination be made unanimous which was done with great cheering mr wickliffe the comic old man of the convention then offered a resolution that general mcallen immediately after his inauguration in march next should open abraham lincoln's prison doors and let the captives free mr guthrie and george h pendleton the principal names mentioned in the first ballot for vice-president but on the second new york changed from guthrie to pendleton and all the other candidates being withdrawn he was nominated unanimously pendleton came to the stand and briefly addressed the convention accepting the nomination and promising to continue faithful to those principles which lie at the very bottom of the organization of the democratic party the convention did not adjourn as usual sunday on the motion of mr wickliffe who said that the delegates from the west were of the opinion that circumstances may occur between now and the fourth of march next which will make it proper for the democracy of the country to meet in convention again the convention resolved to remain as organized subject to be called at any time and place that the executive national committee shall designate the motives of this action were not avowed it was taken as significant warning that the leaders of the democratic party held themselves ready for any extraordinary measures which the exigencies of time might provoke or invite the new yorkers had however the last word mr seymour as chairman of the convention was chairman of the committee to inform mcallen of his nomination and before he wrote the letter atlanta had fallen the tide had turned and the winds of popular opinion which had seemed stagnant throughout the midsummer now began to blow favorably to the national cause the committee in their letter dated a week after the convention adjourned said be assured that those for whom we speak were animated with the most earnest devoted and prayedful desire for the salvation of the american union and preservation of the constitution of the united states and the accomplishment of these objects was a guiding and impelling motive in every mind and we may be permitted to add that their purpose to maintain the union is manifested in their selection as their candidate of one whose life has been devoted to its cause 
while it is their earnest hope and confident belief that your election will restore to our country union peace and constitutional liberty the general answered on the same date he also felt with the new york politicians that the poison of death was in the platform of the convention that if he accepted it pure and simple the campaign was hopeless his only possible chance for success was in his war record his position as a candidate on a platform of dishonorable peace was no less desperate than ridiculous he therefore in his letter of acceptance renewed his assurances of devotion to the union the constitution the laws and the flag of his country he said the re-establishment of the union in all of its integrity is and must continue to be the indispensable condition in any settlement so soon as it is clear or even probable that our present adversaries are ready for peace upon the basis of the union we should exhaust all the resources of statesmanship practiced by civilized nations and taught by the traditions of the american people consistent with the honor and interest of the country to secure such peace re-establish a union and guarantee for future the constitutional rights of every state the union is the one condition of peace we ask no more let me add what i doubt not was although unexpressed the sentiment of the convention as it is of the people they represent that when any one state is willing to return to the union it should be received at once with a full guarantee of all its constitutional rights but the union must be preserved at all hazards i could not look in the face of my gallant comrades of the army and navy who have survived so many bloody battles and tell them that their labors and their sacrifice of so many of their slain and wounded brethren had been in vain that we had abandoned that union for which we have so often periled our lives a vast majority of our people whether in the army and navy or at home would as i would hail with unbounded joy at the permanent restoration of peace on the basis of the union under the constitution without the effusion of another drop of blood but no peace can be permanent without union having thus absolutely repudiated the platform upon which he was nominated he coolly concluded believing that the views here expressed are those of the convention and of the people you represent i accept the nomination upon this contradictory body of doctrine mcclellan began his campaign the platform of convention was the law his letter was the gospel and the orators of the party might reconcile the two according to their sympathies of the ingenuity but the ohio wing had no hesitation in taking its stand the chicago platform said mr valadigam speaking from the same platform mr pendleton on the sixteenth of september enunciated its policies and principle by authority and was binding upon every democrat and by them the democratic administration must and should be governed it was the only authorized exposition of the democratic creed and he repudiated all others and a week afterwards he went still further and specifically contradicted general mcallen he said the two principal points in the letter of acceptance to which i object were brought before the committee the one containing a threat of future wars was unanimously rejected the other to the effect that until the states and the people of the south had returned to the union we would not exhaust these arts of statesmanship as they are called received but three votes in that committee though presented almost in the very words of the letter itself End of chapter eleven